2: That's ChumbaCasino.com.
3: No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
2: Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C.,
4: Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of September 2nd, 2014. On this week's show, we'll talk about the start of the college football season and what the proliferation of neutral site games in NFL stadiums means for the future of the sport. We'll also be joined by ESPN's Don Van Natta, who will discuss his profile of Dallas Cowboys owner, president, general manager, and frequent private jet user Jerry Jones. And Sports Illustrated's Courtney Wen will be here to discuss the first week of the U.S. Open, the upsets therein, the state of Roger Federer, and how American tennis players are getting tired of talking about the sorry state of American tennis. And in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll talk about the Rams' decision to cut Michael Sam, to keep him off their practice squad, and ESPN's report on Sam's showering habits. Joining me in Washington, D.C., Stefan Fatsis, frequent showerer, the author of the mm-hmm. book's Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, your Friday sports correspondent friend Perez all things considered.
5: Hello Stefan. I didn't know Roger Federer has his own state now. He,
4: he is, is mm-hmm. so powerful. Mm-hmm. It's the most elegant state it's in all the land. It's a little bit
1: of a boring state, but really the best by all measures. But still, only the finest. People mock the state.
4: Uh hey, it's Mike Pesca. He's what, is, in what New York. state
1: is like that do you think? Probably Connecticut, right? Like not a sexy state that people want to move to, but you know really has a lot of good things
4: about it. I made uh Connecticut state sport in that 50 50- states, 50 sports, map, squash. Mm-hmm. So I think... Oh, th- so yeah, definitely. There you go.
1: Trinity College. Yeah. Could have been high did any Did any state have high Florida had high Oh, okay. Because I thought that maybe... Obviously, Florida... I mean, sorry, high is more associated with Florida, but I thought Florida might have, you know, tarpon fishing or something else. No,
4: the thinking so. was that high is a weird sport and Florida is a weird state. So it's like a... <laughs> The peanut butter and well, chocolate. There are two chocolate. states that have with glass highlight. Pesca. Yeah. the
5: thinking also is that unless you've driven past exit 35 on I-95, you're really yeah. not, you don't associate
4: Connecticut with highlight.
1: Oh, you, you demean the big Basque population <laughs> of the town of uh, New Bruch. <laughs>
4: <laughs> anyway, you're the host of The Gist with Mike Pesca. Let's start the show. The first season of college football's playoff era began last week with a couple of games on campus sites. Texas A&M routed South Carolina in Columbia. Georgia knocked off Clemson in Athens. But the biggest games of the week were at neutral sites, with number one Florida State beating Oklahoma State in the Cowboys AT&T Stadium. Number two Alabama beat West Virginia in the Falcons home stadium, the Georgia Dome. LSU beat Wisconsin in the Houston Texans Reliant Stadium. So this obviously shows that college football, big business, it kind of reveals more than... Some other things, about the same as certain other things that, uh, you know, these players deserve to be paid, et cetera, so forth. We've talked about it, millions of dollars here. But another issue that I find interesting is that there's this persistent complaint about attendance woes in college football, that students aren't going to games anymore, that even SEC teams are looking to MLS for answers about how to get fans more engaged. And it seems like these things are connected, that if you have all the best games at neutral sites – You have worse non-conference opponents that you're going to dilute the experience of, you know, games on campus. And so I wonder if college football is not, in fact, looking long term here, if these are short term gains uh, for long term woes. What do you think, Mike?
1: I think that almost the entirety of college students not going to games on campus is that they like to drink in the parking lot. That's what I think it is. And it was uh, mentioned in the original Wall Street Journal article that uh, chronicled this supposed decline. But I don't think college football is any less popular among college students. I just think that they like to drink in the parking lot. And they don't allow that in the parking lots of uh, places like AT&T Stadium as easily, or they don't know how to get around the rules, or maybe it's like drinking in their dorms and walking to the stadium a little late. And anyway, we're only talking about a 7% decline. I think that games between uh, good non-conference opponents are a great thing for fans. I do think it's a little unfair. You know, it's tough when a team loses. Obviously, one team's going to lose. But, you know, you lose the first week and you say to yourself, oh, maybe we really didn't have our team together. On the other hand, the other side of that coin is losing the first week is the best week to lose, right? By week 13, if you're tied with someone in the votes, people will say, oh, but it's been so long since they lost.
5: When you say the original Wall Street Journal article, Mike, you mean the one that I wrote in 1998 with Jonathan Weinbach? (laughs)
1: No, I mean about the one the that decline.
5: Teddy Roosevelt <laughs> guest edited in 1907. The one that talked <laughs> about the decline in student attendance at college football games. I mean, as it ever was. I mean, this is, a, this is a long established problem on campuses and campuses don't really care that much because that's not where the revenue comes from. And the revenue is going to come from scheduling more neutral site games, which will help they help the bottom line for athletic departments. And the revenue will come from booking whoever is required to play in those games. And it doesn't really matter how it affects school strategically. I mean, the irony is that schools don't want to play other good schools on the road. And that's what drives the, the neutral site. I mean, the neutral site games end up being, I think, about the same in terms of revenue as a home game would be. So schools doing this is just pure revenue grab. It's no, nothing more, nothing less. And I guess there's some talk of it being a, sort of a exposure grab. You want more people exposed to your brand in different parts of the country. But I think that's kind of a spurious argument given the fact that these programs are pretty well exposed, these schools.
1: Didn't an Oklahoma State student uh, get suspended for an exposure grab?
4: For the Trail of Tears sign. Oh, uh, Jesus. Yeah, that was yeah. not good. I'm an equal opportunity disagreeer because I think both of you are wrong. I think that schools are actually concerned about attendance despite stefan uh, pointing this out in a 1998 article <laughs> if you look at games for even sec teams this is the gold standard of college football it's a religion there you know the fans are obsessed last year i watched every lsu game stadiums may be half full in the second half for the vast majority of these games and it's not just because students like to drink in the parking lot and the sec prohibits alcohol sales in stadiums actually this is something where the NCAA allows schools and conferences to set their own rules, and the SEC, for whatever reason, is prudish in this regard and says no alcohol in the stadium. So I'm sure that has some effect on students. Prudish or prudent, Josh? Oh, that's a debate for uh, our Prohibition podcast. But it's just like with the NFL, that every game is on TV, they're all in HD. People go to LSU games, sit in the parking lot and tailgate and watch the game on their satellite without – Going into the stadium, and there I think could be a bubble in college football. They've expanded the stadium to 100,000 in Baton Rouge. They're expanding stadiums all over the place, and they're scheduling Sam Houston State. You know, Alabama schedules Coastal Carolina, and they're playing all their best games in NFL stadiums far away from home. I think that. You know, if it wasn't a problem at all, then why would these teams enlist? You know, the Kansas City MLS Fan Experience Group—they're not just giving away money for no reason. They do want to enhance. You know, they I'm do not, want fans to go to these games. I'm not, and suggesting it's not, I'm not suggesting
5: it's not a problem. I'm suggesting that it's not a new problem, and and it's certainly cultural. In the piece I wrote 15 years ago, 16 years ago. There's this great line. In short, listening to Ten Thousand Maniacs is way cooler than singing Ten Thousand Men of Harvard. Universities were concerned. I don't think
4: that was ever true. But <laughs> continue. I don't think so either. Oh,
5: well, Ten Thousand Men of Harvard. Yeah,
1: probably those, true.
4: Those were the days. Natalie Merchant. <laughs> it's just an
1: archive. You can't just, go this anywhere is just in,
4: archival material. You can't Mike. go anywhere in Tuscaloosa. If, you know, Natalie Merchant is just mobbed. Don't Everywhere.
5: pretend that you weren't listening to Ten Thousand Maniacs, Mike Pesca.
1: I've, I've, I saw them once play live, and I think she was drunk. But anyway, let's go on. <laughs>
5: let's go on. Um, so, no, it's not that they don't want students to come. It's that you're right. Engaging students is a much more difficult operation. There's much more to do. Students don't really care. There is a cynicism about sports generally not and just college students.
4: sports too. But it's not just students. I think that if you're, you know, even a – well-to-do gentlemen with a personal seat license. And a raccoon coat. It's just not that appealing to go to a lot of these games on, you know, teams' home schedules because if you schedule the one good game for national TV exposure in a neutral site, and you've got your conference schedule too, you're not going to want to go to, you know, half of the Home schedule. And then, if there's bad weather, as there often is in these games, you're going to stay home for that too. And then, so like at AT ATT Stadium. Yeah, at AT ATT Stadium. (laughs) I remember like last year at the LSU Florida game, nobody was there because it was raining. It's like it doesn't take that much to keep people away in the most like diehard region because, you know, every game is on TV and HD. You don't need to be there. It's a pain in the ass. And so, you're only going to go for the Alabama game or whatever. I think there is this bigger kind of, I don't know if, if existential might be an exaggeration, but I think it's something that, you know, schools should be concerned. About. Well, this is a little bit of hoist on your own petard, too. As college football emphasized, has emphasized over, over
5: the last 30 years, these gigantic matchups and the appeal of playing other giant schools outside of their conferences at the beginning of the season, um, it effectively has tamped down interest more broadly, I think, in those teams. Because you're right, who wants to go see the Cupcake game when you can see us play Wisconsin or Ohio State or Alabama in another tune-up game? And... We can just watch it on television because why bother going to the stadium, particularly if it's at an NFL stadium? And if you're giving the local college sports fan his fix of your team, of his team, when they're playing – in Yankee Stadium or in Dublin, Ireland or in Cowboys Park, then, yeah, it certainly diminishes the value of the in-game experience. Your colleague, our colleague, Ben mathis Lilly, has a piece up on Slate now about Michigan playing Appalachian State for marketing reasons. And Ben's suggestion is go back to the old system. Make tickets really cheap, no advertising, make it a college experience, and that
4: will enhance the product even more. I'm sure the Michigan athletic character oh, no is t- taking notes.
1: Well, I think the fans of a college team, much like the fans of 10,000 Maniacs, they feel that they are in my tribe or in their own tribes. And... It used to be the case that the uh, best place to get that tribal experience was at the stadium. But now as we've ratcheted up and there is an arms race around college football and people realize how uh, great it could be. I mean, there are so many other better, cheaper options where you could surround yourself with, you know, hundreds of like-minded fans. And it doesn't seem that different from the fan experience. So I would just suggest that the students not attending games, I think are, is mostly a drinking thing. I would suggest that everything else that's going on with college football attendance is part and parcel of the whole question of football being so great on tv that of course the game day experience is going to be lesser especially when it's not twice or three times as expensive i mean it's 20 and 30 times as expensive to take a family of four to a game as opposed to watching it either in a public setting or in your own home and great TV. This is going on with all of sports and if, and especially with football because football is the most expensive and looks the best on TV and is the most inconvenient to go to in a lot of ways just because of the sheer number of people and the sheer amount of uh, traffic you have to deal with.
4: So what's interesting to me is that both in these, you know, first game of the season, neutral site games, and in the, you know, end of the year playoff, these games in NFL stadiums, it's sort of counter to what college football has built itself as for a century in two different ways. Um, If you watch any game on ESPN, there will always be a segment about, like, the campus culture, you know, the special things about, you know, between the hedges and the tiger walk and touching the rock and all these things. Why are you guys laughing? Yes. No, that's right.
1: And filleting the panda and stroking the minor bird and the famous minor bird that was stroked before every home win. And the words that no one could have thought of by themselves above the door that said, please win. If not, play hard. Touch Touch them. Touch them, Mike. Touch touch the
4: words. So all of these things, you know, they'll continue to sell the programs and, and TV, even as they're kind of moving away from this. For the money-grabbing reasons that we've discussed earlier, if you can earn more money at a neutral site venue, then, you know, screw Frank Howard's rock, you know, throw it in the river. But also, this is an important time for the NCA in terms of marketing its own mission of student-athlete and amateurism and how these are just regular students and they don't, you know, do anything different or... You know, every student at uh, you know Alabama goes to the Georgia Dome the first week of school and the school makes $7 million off of it or however much they made. So it just seems like counter to the message that the NCAA is trying to send out in various forms of litigation as well. And I wonder if that's going to come back to haunt them.
5: Isn't ultimately this the problem for for college football and for college sports generally? Is that as we get a further bifurcation or the completion of the bifurcation between the top 64, whatever number of schools it is, 65 and the rest of college football, the top 65 are going to want to create more revenue opportunities so that they can compete better for the athletes that they are recruiting, because if you're starting to be, even if it's capped, if you're giving out money to some athletes, you want to give out as much as possible to as many as possible to the best ones to try to get them to come to you. And that is only going to push schools to look for new revenue opportunities. I mean, was it in Ben's piece that I read that someone wants to play a game in Dubai?
4: Yeah, the Texas athletic director Dubai? has mentioned that.
5: Dubai. Is, does the University of Texas, are they opening a campus in Dubai? It's very possible that they are.
4: Yeah, I think that the entire 2022 season for all of the top 65 teams will be played in Qatar. Yeah. And on the moon. It'll be a home and home, Qatar and the moon. Because, you know, sporting
1: leagues scheduling sporting events in the Middle East in August and September. <laughs> I mean, they're just smart.
5: There's no this downside to branding, that. smart branding, Mike. Yeah. It's good branding. Nothing, nothing literally branding. Because it's so hot, you could actually <laughs> brand the
4: athletes. And Bevo. And then they Bevo touched the sign that.
1: before every game and their fingers melted to it. Yes. <laughs>
4: All right, we have a live show October eighth at Galapagos Art Space in Brooklyn. It's part of New York Super Week, which is an extension of New York Comic Con. You can get tickets at Slate.com dot com slash hang up Super It is a twenty dollars ticket. You get thirty percent off for our beloved Slate Plus members. We got to figure out who our elite... beloved
5: Slate Plus members are. Well,
4: <laughs> that I think we know. Um, we're watching all of you and and monitoring all of your activities. Not really. Just kidding. But we had Nate Silver at a live show before in New York. We had Bob Costas. What is, Mike, what is, how does it go? Silver to Costas to Chance? To fr- yes, to Evers. There was someone else, didn't we? Ha- oh, yeah. What about um, our outside shooter
1: from uh, North Carolina State?
4: Oh, yeah, Julius Hodge. That wasn't in yeah. New York, though. Hey, what he was about- right. from New York, but that was in Raleigh. Yeah.
5: What about our kicker friend? What about him? He was our guest in Washington. He wasn't in New York
4: either. Billy Cundiff. Right. He was not. But, you know, kicker to be announced soon. Maybe a, maybe so we've a covered the kicker.
5: We've covered <laughs> the, the famous broadcaster.
4: We've covered the analytics guy. Baseball
1: playoffs are going on. Maybe we get a baseball guy. I mean, have we ever gotten a baseball guy? Well, Costas is, but he does everything.
4: He does everything. We'll see. Let's get we'll, baseball guy. We'll announce something
5: soon. Okay. Send us suggestions. We can ignore them just as well. <laughs> we send us as... suggestions like that
1: go like this. My neighbor, Rusty Staub, is up for anything I suggest to him. That sort of thing.
4: Rusty Staub, well, he and I share a birthday. Go on, Josh. Rusty Staub is kind of related to me. How so? He's my aunt's stepmother's brother.
1: Wow. How is this guy not coming already, just as a fan? <laughs> <laughs>
4: Mike, what's your connection with Rusty Staub?
1: I just pulled for Le Grand Orange during the dog days of Mets fandoms in the early
4: 80s. In conclusion, go to slate.com slash superweek to buy tickets. We'd love to see you there.
5: It's going to be a super week.
4: Don Van Natta Jr.'s profile of Jerry Jones begins with the 71-year-old Cowboys owner and GM dancing with 31-year-old actress Kate Bosworth during a George Strait concert at the stadium that's best known as Jerry World. Jones is sipping Johnny Walker Blue Label, bragging about how the concert broke the Super Bowl record for money spent at the stadium with gate proceeds of $13 million. Jones turns to Cowboys quarterback Tony Romo in his private suite and says, This is fun, isn't it? They will not kick a last-second field goal and kick our asses tonight. Everybody goes home happy. It's a great opening scene. Uh, as Van Natta explains, the one thing Jones wants most is the only thing he can't buy. Another Super Bowl title and the respect that would come with it for Jones's football acumen. Joining us now by phone is Don Van Natta, the author of the ESPN, the magazine piece, Jerry Football. Hello, Don. Hey, guys. How you doing today? Good. I hope your a liver has recovered from your summer with Jerry Jones.
3: Awesome. Uh, Slowly. It's a process.
4: (laughs) Uh, The piece was a great feat of uh, writing and reporting. Congratulations on it. Also a great feat of drinking. Uh, But you'd probably agree with me, Don, that it was not the biggest challenge in the world for you to figure out what makes Jerry Jones tick.
3: Oh, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, He is an open book. You ask him a question, and even if he doesn't want to answer it, even if he tells you he doesn't want to answer it, he answers it uh, in a blizzard of words. I had hundreds of pages of transcripts spending all the time I had with Jones, and the only area we didn't talk about were those photos of him with young women that came out in early August. But other than that, every question I asked him, he answered and answered again and again and again.
5: One of the themes of the piece, Don, is the bifurcation in Jones's job: owner and general manager. He's also president, but who really cares about the president part? Owner,
1: sure. He's I'm sure he's in charge of the Jerry Jones Foundation too.
5: Yeah, let's put that on his. I'm sure that's on his. That's not on his business card because we saw his business card on your Outside the Lines piece. This bifurcation in his job description is, I think, something that has always fascinated me. Not being a Texan nor a Cowboys fan. I've almost forgotten that Jerry Jones is the general manager of that team. I covered him as a business writer for the Wall Street Journal when in the 80s and 90s, it was undeniable that what he did to transform that team and take on and, and subvert the interests of his fellow owners was nothing short of brilliant. He reshaped how football operates as a business, but the general manager part is all that he seems to really care about, or at least what he seems to focus on and he seems to worry about in terms of his legacy.
3: He's told friends that making a million bucks for him is easy, but winning a Super Bowl is hard. It's the only thing he can't do. What makes the story so interesting is this is a multi-billionaire, as you say, this visionary for the NFL, an incredible entrepreneur, pioneer, of television for the NFL. He built a spectacular stadium, arguably maybe the most beautiful stadium in the world. And yet, the thing he wants most is the respect of other football guys, respect of peers, that he knows how to build a Super Bowl winning team. Well, then you think, well, wait a minute. Well, he was the owner when the team won three Super Bowls in the early 90s. Unfortunately, Jimmy Johnson, in the minds of most Cowboys fans, gets the credit for that, not Jerry Jones, and this really annoys him. And every season that goes by where they go 8-8, and you know, they've been mediocre now for 17 years, dead even at 136 wins and 136 losses and only one playoff victory. Every season that goes by with more mediocrity, the pressure gets turned up on Jerry Jones to, hey, put a product on the field that actually has a chance of making the playoffs and winning the Super Bowl and he feels that pressure. He's aware of it and wants nothing else to prove, that final thing on his bucket list, that he can build a Super Bowl team on his own without Jimmy Johnson.
1: So, first let's talk about how fair it is to criticize Jones. Before the bunch of 8-8 eight and eight seasons, and yeah, you know, we all know how luck-based football is. And a couple plays here and there there are a couple maybe those are winning teams and maybe those are playoff teams so they did have the six and ten season where Kitna was forced to be the quarterback but then every other Romo season before then was a winning season and then that was preceded by an era of where the Cowboys uh you know weren't great but before then you had your Super Bowl seasons so overall I think most teams I mean my team, the Jets, we trade that record for the Cowboys. Most teams, by the way, when I say my team, I am part owner. So most teams, I think, look at the Cowboys and people get a lot of shot in Freud, or in this case, shot in mediocrita. But really, how fair is it to put this on Jones?
3: I think it is fair to put it on him. He's the guy that's putting the teams on the field, not just as the guy who's ultimately making the decisions about who's gonna play, who's gonna sign who he's going to hire to be the coaches. Every single decision that has to do with football related to the Dallas Cowboys goes through Jones, from money to players, everything. So I I think it, it is fair. Now, his defenders, his closest friends, like Larry Lacewell, who was a Cowboy scout for 13 years, who I quote in the story, says that Jerry is extremely unlucky. He's the luckiest guy he's ever seen in business and in life, but the unluckiest guy as a football man, because there has been a lot of missed opportunities, very close calls where the Cowboys. If a ball bounced a different way with that with that Romo uh, field goal against the Seahawks in the playoff game a few years back, you know, when Parcells was coached, it would have been different. It could have been different. But I, I think ultimately it's fair, you know, Jones wants the credit or at least some of the credit when the team won those three Super Bowls. It's just as fair to give him the blame for 17 years of mediocrity. It works both ways.
4: So with this Johnny Manziel thing, this is another big part of the profile, and Jones talking openly, kind of bizarrely, about how he really regrets not taking Johnny Manziel in the draft. And for a guy who seems obsessed with people thinking that he's a smart football guy, that he's really knowledgeable, seems like kind of a strange public pose to take, because this is business Jerry seeming to, you know, want to outweigh the opinion of Football Jerry. And then when Football Jerry wins out and takes the offensive tackle that he needs, he's like really sad about it. So what kind of image is he actually trying to portray here? Can he just not control himself?
3: He may not be able to control himself. The sort of Football Jerry versus Business Jerry is really seen in sharp relief on the Johnny Manziel question. Because, you know, what's interesting, when I first met him at the Ritz-Carlton Bar back in May, and I raised Johnny Manziel. Remember, this is just two weeks after the NFL draft when the Cowboys uh, had a shot to get Manziel. Jerry Jones was sitting in the draft room grinding these number two pencils in his fist and anguished over the decision and Twitter almost blew up. And then he, you know, chose a Notre Dame offensive tackle named Zach Martin as opposed to Manziel. He explained to me when I first met him, every way he described Manziel was as business Jerry that if he had picked Manziel, it would have guaranteed the relevance of the Cowboys for the next decade. And he loved the idea of Johnny football playing for America's team. In fact, thinking about it, I don't think he ever talked about Johnny Manziel as a great quarterback. It was all about the marketing and the synergy and all of the possibilities of Manziel being on the Cowboys. And what's so fascinating is just a couple weeks after he said that to me at the Ritz-Carlton, he introduces me, Jones introduces me to Tony Romo in his suite during the George Strait concert, and he sounds very different about Manziel standing there with Romo. That's maybe not a surprise, but one of the one of my favorite moments of all this reporting is when Jones introduces me to Romo. Romo says, well, what's your angle for this outside-the-line story? You always got to have an angle. And before I can answer, Jones answers for me looking right at Romo, and he says, pass it on Manziel for Romo, just like that. Romo very quickly goes into this long soliloquy about how smart Jerry was by passing on Manziel, that he, you know, didn't pick the flashy, you know, matinee idol of the draft, and instead he picked the guy that was going to really help uh, shore up the offense. And Jones is loving it. He's loving these compliments about his football acumen given to him by Romo. He returns the compliment, and he comes up with this kind of odd analogy of Tony Romo being your fighter pilot that uh, you want, uh, you know, to go out to war on your behalf, and that if anybody could have handled Manziel competing with him, it could have been Tony Romo. So it it shows you the different hats, I think, in a very revealing way that Jerry Jones has to wear, and you're absolutely right. I mean, the Manziel question really does show, I hope for readers, how Jerry's a bit at war with himself between the business side and the marketing side and the football side.
5: Isn't Jerry Jones ultimately just... A rich guy that no one wants to piss off, that nobody wants to stand (laughs) up to when it comes to the football. I mean, you see this. We've seen this with coaches in the NFL. I mean, Mike Shanahan got booted from Denver because he was all wanted to be general manager and he wasn't very good at it. But there's no one that can say to Jerry Jones, you suck at this. Please let us let us put together the team the way we know how to put together the team and stay out of it and do the things that you're good at.
3: There's nobody who says that to him. The guy that probably comes closest to it is his oldest son, Stephen, who just turned 50 years old this summer, the executive vice president for player personnel, and who kind of threw his body in front of his father taking Johnny Manziel. But I don't know how close or how often that happens. I don't know whether that's the first time, the third time, or the fifth time. You know, Jones does what he wants. And damn the torpedoes on football. You know, he hired Dan Reeves. It's instructive. I didn't get into this in the piece, unfortunately, because I didn't have the space. But five years ago, Dan Reeves, a former Broncos coach, was hired for about three days. And Jones and Reeves really couldn't come up with sort of a structure for how Reeves was going to work as a consultant, as a sort of football man on staff. Reeves later complained that Jones wanted him to sort of punch a clock. In the contract, uh, apparently Jones wanted a certain number of hours that Reeves had to be at Valley Ranch every week, and it, and it fell apart very quickly. But that would have been probably the closest, since Parcells was a coach anyway, that somebody you know, would have been almost on an equal footing, not quite, but somebody who would be there to try to help Jerry uh, with these football decisions. And as I say, Reeves lasted three days at Valley Ranch, and he was out the door.
1: You know, I guess... It was Balzac who said, behind every great fortune lies a great crime. As I'm reading this, I mean, he, Jones certainly has a great fortune. And he's, you you paint him as buffoonish and, uh, you know, at times charming, but a personality that can great and certainly impetuous and petty. So definitely negative traits. But... Is there any indication that, you know, he's done some of the horrible things that other owners have done, like some truly immoral things? I know Cowboys fans think going 8-8 eight and eight is immoral, but I'm talking about actually beyond that.
3: No, I, not not at all. And I, and I would take the exception to your characterization that I portrayed him as buffoonish. I mean, maybe that's... Now, maybe that's how it came across.
1: Yeah, I that's him. right. I'll, I'll cop to that. I'll cop to that. When you, you portrayed him quite fairly, I'm sure, and I got this impression of this guy because I, I just saw his gleaming teeth in my head.
3: I don't see him as a buffoon. I, I see him as an incredibly smart guy You know, who's got this one sort of... We all have many weaknesses. I have many weaknesses. I think he's got one weakness. His one weakness or frailty is that there's this one thing he desperately wants He's got to do it himself. Now, the question is whether he has the talent to do it or not. A lot of Cowboys fans have said for years that he doesn't. Arguably, you could say the coaches that he's brought in, uh, with the exception of Bill Parcells and Jimmy Johnson, he's had buffoonish coaches who don't get hired. they only get hired by the Dallas Cowboys. Can't get a head coaching job anywhere else in the league. And why is that? You know, you wonder why that is. Is it because he doesn't like to be challenged? He doesn't like to have a smart football guy around? even as the head coach, that he's going to be the sort of ultimate guy? I mean, those are the kind of questions I would hope that my story at least raises for readers and, and maybe even comes close to answering some of them. But he's not buffoonish. He's certainly charming. He's roguish. He's, he's hilarious at times. He does what he wants. You know, he's an amazing um, American success story in every which way. And you're right. Is he uh, Donald Sterling? Absolutely not. It's interesting. Dan Snyder, for instance, is a protege of Jones. That's one thing I found very, very interesting. Dan Snyder wants to be like Jerry Jones. You know, that's one of the things that I found very fascinating about my time this summer. They talk on the phone. Uh, Snyder consults with Jones on, on various matters. And, then you know, they talk all the time. I,
5: I, interviewed, I interviewed both of them once when they were on a yacht in the Mediterranean <laughs> together. Really? Yeah. Great interview. So what happened? Eh, it was some NFL marketing thing. They were vacationing together. They flew
1: you out there or you had to do it by phone? Oh, no. I was not
4: on the yacht. Let me clarify. (laughs) Stefan was on a dinghy alongside the yacht. (laughs) So, you know, it doesn't at all read this way in the piece that you got too close to Jones or anything like that. But you spent so much time with him and just, you know, people might wonder this journalistically. How do you guard against becoming just like too infatuated with the guy? You know, you drink with him all the time, like, what, uh, you know, did you have that concern when you were writing the piece?
3: I did have the concern, because it's not the kind of piece I normally do as an investigative reporter. I I don't usually get this kind of access. You know, when I did a story last year about Roger Goodell, Goodell, you know, wouldn't talk to me. So I'm used to the people I write about in these kind of investigative profiles not inviting me to sidle up to the bar and have a Johnny Walker blue with them. So I was absolutely concerned about it throughout, but I was doing my own reporting simultaneous to hanging out with him and talking to, you know, his enemies, people who don't like him, people who think he's a colossal failure as general manager, you know, former coaches, former players. A lot of those people would not go on the record. I make the point in the story about how the former coach, Wade Phillips, for instance, who I was told by Phillips's friends, really felt that Jones had undermined him when he was head coach. And I got Phillips on the phone. He agreed to see me at around lunchtime one day. Called me just a few hours later and said, "I I I can't do it. I don't want to say anything negative about Jerry. He's been really really good to me," and uh, and so he decided not to do it. And I heard that from a lot of people. You know, Jerry Jones is somebody who who keeps his friends close and his and his enemies closer, and and so it was difficult to do that kind of reporting. But I, because I was on guard against getting too close to him, I mean, I would have done this anyway. But in particular, I really did a lot of reporting outside, just hanging around the suite with them uh, to try to give a full portrait.
5: You know, the thing about Jerry Jones, though, is that he is the last, I think, of a real dying breed of professional sports owners in America. He is colorful. He is outspoken. He is an egomaniac. He is willing to say whatever it takes and do whatever he thinks is right in the furtherance of his business. And there aren't many people like that left in sports.
3: He's definitely old school. He is not that guarded as I said, he's not guarded at all, except for that one area on those photos. And I made it clear to him, I don't think he should be surprised by anything. It's interesting, when the story came out late last week on his radio show, he said that he was surprised that I had mentioned that we had Drunk so much Johnny Walker Blue together and there was so much drinking. I, I don't know how he can be surprised by that. I think I spent eight days with him, and seven of the eight days we drank multiple drinks. <laughs> it's called, drink. it's called I mean, a it's like blackout, was, Don. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was the lubricant of our time together. How do you, as a magazine writer, not reflect that? You know, I, I, mean, I absolutely had to. So he, he, he was surprised by that, but what was funny about it, and again, this goes to Jones's charm. He, he was sort of challenged, and so I guess somebody said, "Hey, but Jared, you know the Johnny Walker Blue is tastes good, right?" And then he paused and went, "Well, it is good, like that. Like you know, it was sort of irresistible for me, I guess, to put it in. But, but yeah, he is total old school, Stefan. And uh, as we know in this business, if you want to write about an owner, you know, you're wrestling, you know, with somebody like Lanny Davis for a couple of weeks, if you're lucky. That's the closest you're going to get to an owner. And and so, you know, uh, I, I was very, very fortunate that he happened to be sitting in the Ritz-Carlton bar after that owner's meeting alone and was in a mood to chat because that was the way to get him, you know, on board with this project. And as I said, once he was on board, he was all in.
4: Or you can read Don's story, Jerry Football on ESPN.com and various other ESPN-ish platforms. Don, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, guys. An alert to listeners. Mike Pesca had to step away for this segment, will be, but we'll be back for the afterball portion of the show. Um, And now we are going to move on to tennis. And after one week at the U.S. Open, the big storylines are that only one of the top nine seeds in the women's bracket, uh, Serena Williams, is still alive. Roger Federer and Novak Djokovic have cruised along so far, and they could meet in the final, which would be their sixth U.S. Open matchup of all time. And American men and women, save Serena, continue to stink at the slams, with nobody except Venus's younger sister making it past the third round to talk about all this. We're now joined by Courtney Nguyen, who writes about tennis for SI.com and is one of the co-hosts, along with past hang-up guest Ben Rothenberg of the No Challenges remaining podcast. Hello, Courtney.
0: Hello, slate team.
4: And uh, let's start, Courtney, with the women's side of things, where carnage has been everywhere. It's been, blo- it's been a bloodbath. For the first time since 1977, there are going to be eight different Slam finalists this year. Um, champs, Lena, Maria Sharapova, and Petra Kovitova. Previous finalists, Dominika Chibulkova, Simona Halep, and Jeannie Bouchard have all been eliminated in New York. Or in the case of Lena, they didn't play at the tournament. So how do you explain the topsy-turviness of
0: women's tennis this year? Well, I think a lot of it, unfortunately, has to be put a little bit at the doorsteps of Serena Williams. I think we're used to seeing her dominate you know, on every surface, whether it's going to be at the Australian Open on hard court, U.S. Open on hard court, French uh, clay, even if it's not her best surface, and then obviously Wimbledon. And she went crashing out the first three slams before uh, the quarterfinals. So that's been a bit disappointing, and, and her losses really created openings for a lot of players to make you know, great runs and and win titles. And you saw that with Lina in Australia Open, uh, with Maria Sharapova, who hasn't beaten Serena in like a decade, you know, saw her go through and win the French Open, and then at Wimbledon with Petra Kvitova. And so while we are in this kind of really fun transitional stage with the women's side of all these younger names and new names, like a Simona Halep or Eugenie Bouchard, making all these breakthrough runs, what that ends up meaning is that you have these kind of untested players making it, super super deep and then the expectations go up and then especially here final slam of the year you know lots of expectations for like a bouchard or halip who's number two now and they just they can't deliver so that's kind of my my theory as of the moment it's just we have just a lot of untested names who made it through very deep in the draws the first three slams and um, just kind of choked when they got here
5: oh choked that's so harsh courtney (laughs) these are athletes they're people. They're trying. Beings, They're doing their best. How about, how, about the, how about the qualifier, uh, the Serbian 21-year-old Aleksandra Krunic, who uh, lost to Vika Azarenka last night? I mean, that, the, the U.S. Open loves these sorts of stories, of course. We love the 15-year-old C.C. Bellis and the 17-year-old Swiss girl, and we love the 21-year-old that nobody's ever heard of. I mean, without those, it really does feel like a, a sort of a soup of names that most tennis fans or casual tennis fans aren't really familiar with.
0: Yeah, I mean, we, you know, what other sport is, like, age constantly touted, you know, before you say somebody's name? We have to say 15-year-old Cici Bellis. We have to say, you know, 17-year-old Belinda Bencic. And, you know, last night with Alexandra Krunich, that was just amazing. And even for someone like me, I mean, I've been aware of Alexandra Krunich since she was just 14 years old playing on the Serbian Fed Cup team. And uh, what she was able to do, win six matches through qualifying, through the first week, uh, make the fourth round, lose to Victoria Azarenko win, which would have, what would have been her seventh win had she been able to pull that off in three sets, meaning she basically won a slam, winning seven matches in New York, it was great, and she just absolutely electrified the crowd. I mean, the New Yorkers just absolutely loved this, what this little kid was doing out there against a player who gen- generally they, they don't mind, uh, Victoria Azarenka, <laughs> 2 time finalist, I guess I'll put Her it Her
4: singing way. was atrocious, oh my god.
0: <laughs> that was so I'm awkward. sorry, between the
4: grunting and the singing,
5: she
0: lost me. Yeah, she, I think she lost a lot of people there.
2: <laughs> okay, sing with me, sing with me. Happy birthday to you,
1: happy birthday to you. to you. Thank you!
4: But there has been a return to form of some names that we are more familiar with. Azarenka, who's been out with injury for most of the year, and Caroline Wozniacki, who has made big news this year because of her breakup with Rory McElroy. And people seem to have a huge amount of affection for her. She's incredibly genial and bubbly in her press conferences. Her personality is something that people really latch on to. And you get the sense that the entire tennis world, which is this pretty like close-knit traveling circus, is really rooting for her to get back to the top of her game. Maybe, is it because of the breakup? Is it because people feel bad for her? Is it people be- because people love her apart from that?
0: I think a lot of it has to do with the breakup, I think, because it wasn't like people were rooting for her internally to win a major or get to number one, you know, back in 2010, 2011. So, um, you know, I think nowadays, yeah, there is this kind of closed ranks tennis community activity around Caroline Wozniacki that there is a, a protective vibe around her. And um, she, when she gave that just really classy and and emotional press conference at the French Open, which was the first time she addressed the media after breaking up with Rory. I think that that was really when everybody kind of, Came out of that press conference thinking, you know what? We hope this kid is able to turn things around. We hope that, you know, as Rory's off, you know, winning majors or winning tournaments and turning his career around, that hers doesn't go fledgling because that would be, you know, embarrassing on every different level. And so she has, and she hasn't done that. I mean, she's been probably the winningest player since maybe Wimbledon, and has just been putting in quality performance after quality performance. And you know, she's a likable person, and the vibe in her in her interviews, her press conferences are completely different it's just way different vibe than any other player you can tell the press just like her she's having fun it's relaxed she's not defensive so you know she's playing great tennis here and her win over Maria Sharapova absolutely the biggest win of her career and she played fantastic in that final set so you know she's my pick to make the final now that the bracket's completely busted but um, along with Serena but uh, good on her
4: so what is the state of the Federer Courtney this is always the question. these tournaments. I saw him play Sam Groth, the Australian with the alleged 163 mile per hour serve. Federer was not not deterred by the big man's big serve. Um, And it's looking like the bottom half of the draw where Federer sits is just very easy compared to the top where Djokovic and Murray are. So um, what do you see in his play and and how do you like his chances in New York?
0: He's moving great. Um, That's the biggest thing that stands out to me. And so much of, you know, the vintage shot making and and things like that, the speed, the no look, you know, backhand lobs, all that, it's all there. And the serve is clicking And, and the movement and the serve are really the two things that let him down last year uh, when he was injured and dealing with a back injury and also pretty low on confidence I think at the time. So all of that seems to be taken care of. I think the biggest issue for Roger is that we've seen him have these sorts of runs before where he plays great through the first four or five rounds, you know gets the semifinals and then when he has to actually start playing the guys that we're used to seeing him play against the ATP's alleged big four even though they're not all ranked in the top four anymore that's when the problems start to occur and that's where the, the lack of confidence start, begins to, or doubt, I guess, starts to creep in. So, you know, he could absolutely blitz his six matches and get to the final and lose in three sets to a Novak Djokovic. That's a very, very much a possibility. So in terms of winning the title, we'll have to see who he faces in the final if he gets there. But, yeah, I mean, his half of the draw, I mean, who's going to stop him? Uh, uh, Grigor Dimitrov, Gael Monfils. Thomas Burdick, tough to see the way that Roger's playing right now. And and that's great to see. just turned 33, and he's playing great tennis. And uh, both him and Serena going for their 18th Grand Slam titles at the same time, it's a pretty cool story.
5: Why not Gael Monfils? There's a profile of him in the New York Times on Tuesday about his sort of enigmatic nature. He's playing without a coach right now. And everybody who's quoted talks about this sort of unmatched potential and the athleticism, the strength, um, shot making, but also a sort of stubbornness in terms of how he plays stylistically. Could this guy have been or still be one of the best players in tennis?
0: Absolutely. I mean, I think why not? Gael Malfiz should be, you know, the name of any profile that's ever written about Gael Malfiz. He has every tool. He's the greatest athlete to ever play pick up a tennis racket, just in terms of raw athletic ability, in my opinion, if he could get into the top five and be a consistent top five presence or win a major or two, not that that's easy, if he could do that, he has the type of game that could change tennis, that would make tennis cool, make tennis feel like an exciting sport, just like it was back in the 70s and 80s that you sat down and watched to to see guys make just ridiculous shots and kind of amp up the crowd and uh, wind people up. So, you know, there's no reason that Gael can't do it. It's just a pure issue of discipline. You know, he's that guy who's like, it's like Tin Cup. He just wants to make the shot the way he wants to make the shot. And even if that's not the smart play, he's just going to keep going for the spinning, you know, leaping forehand until he makes it, um, even if that costs him two games. And so that's what makes him incredibly interesting and kind of exciting, but also invariably completely frustrating um, because he can do it. And we all know that he has the talent to all the shots. Uh, He just won't play smart tennis when he needs to play smart tennis.
4: So when I was in uh, New York for a couple of days, um, you could just feel the desperation for the next American tennis star after the Williams sisters. I went to the match, the second rounder between uh, C.C. Bellis and D.S. of Kazakhstan. And Kazakhstan beat the United States, as rarely happens in sports. Um, But it was on court 17. There was an incredibly long line to see this 15-year-old girl. And it just really did feel desperate. I mean, it's exciting to see a 15-year-old do so well at a slam. She was really fun. And she was exciting. And there are a bunch of Young Americans, you know, Sloan Stevens, Madison Keyes, Taylor Townsend, we could go on. But the results have just not been there. And it's looking, you know, even worse on the men's side. So do you feel like desperation is (laughs) the right word to describe the state of American tennis fans? And also, the players just seem so sick of answering questions, although, you know, the one way to stop the questions is to win a Grand Slam match. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, you know, Tennis Channel is going to be airing CC C. Bellis' second round junior match today. And uh so that's kind of the level of hype she opened up her junior campaign yesterday on on uh Monday on the Grandstand court. Not a whole lot of juniors get to play Grandstand court on their first round matches. But yeah, of course there's an air of desperation. We were at one time a dominant tennis country and uh we're just not that anymore and and uh you know, we're having to You know, fans are having to learn new names and get on board with players that that don't fly the flag, and they want somebody who is their own. And I've seen this when I went to a few years ago to a Davis Cup tie in Austin, Texas, and I had never seen, at least within my lifetime, American tennis and American tennis fans come together and just be so incredibly patriotic. To me, tennis isn't really a sport that I attach patriotism to, I guess, because I kind of see it more that's a globalized sport, so you just kind of attach yourself to players. But in that environment, you know, with Roddick playing and Fish and all these guys, it was, it was really fun, and you started to see how important it was to have somebody from your own country to root for, and particularly at your home slam. And so, yeah, I mean, I think there is an air of desperation. You can see that, you know, within the USTA and all of the different changes that they're trying to make, you know, building this new National Tennis Center in Orlando For some reason, no one really knows why. We already have national tennis centers. You know, all the debates about, you know, can you grow a a champion within a federation kind of factory system, or does it have to be a little bit more free form? All of this sort of behind-the-scenes debate really just comes from, you know, the United States, Britain, France, and Australia, the four Grand Slam countries, trying to figure out how the heck we can, like, return to the glory days of, of tennis prominence and build champions. And uh, it's kind of a weird like arms race right now to to figure out how exactly to do that and where to put the money.
5: What seems interesting to me is that this is just part of a a cycle, both on the tennis side and on the media side. I mean, a few years ago, we were celebrating at the U.S. Open Melanie Udan, the American upstart who advanced pretty far in the tournament, and this year it's CeCe Bellis. The follow-up seems to be the problem, both competitively and on the media side, trying to to figure out what's the right approach towards celebrating America.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, for me, I got so many, you know, foreign media, foreign requests to talk about CeCe Bellis, and the constant refrain was like, we all have to be careful. No, we don't think that she's the future of American tennis. No, she's not going to be a future number one. I cannot tell you that right now. Her body will change. She's short. Her serve isn't all that great. All these things are understandable for a 15-year-old kid. But, you know, time we need to see what happens. You know, yeah, you mentioned Melanie Udan, who's now ranked obviously outside the top 100, and and fairly irrelevant within, you know, the competitive, the top elite competitive tennis world. Uh, Last year, Vicky Duvall beating Sam Stoser at the U.S. Open, and unfortunately she's been diagnosed with cancer and is dealing with that. So we don't know what can happen to a player, you know, who's that young, and you can't, you know, bank on them to to deliver these sorts of results forever. But, you know, I think that the media has learned from, from particularly the Melanie Udan experience, at least within the tennis media, that, you know, we can't be in this position where we're, we're pumping up these really young players, and especially in CeCe Bellis' position, you know, really a kid at 15, you know, there has to be some sort of caution, you know, applied to that situation. And at least, luckily for her, it does seem that, like, you know, she's not going to go overboard and be on every single talk show and really let this get to her head. So that's somewhat comforting at least for me
5: all right quickly Courtney. before we let you go you did an extensive gallery of fashion hits and misses at the u.s open conspicuously absent was roger Federer's pastel outfit the other day
0: it was absent i do apologize i shall make the correction but the gallery actually did go up before roger played a day session match which is what that kit was for which was a day session kit and don't try to
5: squirrel out of it i mean that was some serious (laughs) pastel going on there
0: There's there's a lot going on. It's a bit day glow. I think, is it trying to be kind of an 80s hyper color agassi thing? I'm not sure. But it's just such an eyesore compared to his Darth Federer, all black, check me out in my limited edition Michael Jordan kicks look that seemed to work for him so well.
4: Well, you can check out Courtney's fashion and tennis coverage on SI.com during the US Open and otherwise, and you can listen to her and Ben Rothenberg on the No Challenges remaining podcast. Courtney, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, guys. All right, it is now time for after balls, and in honor of Jerry Jones, the great Cowboys owner, Double J, Bon bon Vivant. Let's do Broyles's. Frank Broyles is his North Star, his touchstone. The Arkansas coach, the legend, still alive at age 89, taught Jerry Jones everything. Everything. (laughs) Thank you for echoing that sentiment. Much appreciated, Mike. What is your Broyles? So I give you this headline from the Cleveland Plain Dealer.
1: It was about something Urban Meyer said in a press conference, an explanation to why he suspended tight end Marcus Baugh. Quote, Marcus Baugh suspended for stuff. That's what Urban Meyer cited. It was stuff, Meyer said. He was old. And while the media in Ohio thought this was kind of a funny explanation, I don't understand why. There's a long history of this in college basketball and college football. In fact, let's go to another Ohio team when Cincinnati coach Mick Cronin said four suspended Bearcats players will have to earn their way back onto the team to make amends for this and that. Quote, "...before any of them put a uniform back, they will apologize for the things. And by that, I mean the motley bag of miscellany. And that's just the first step before putting that uniform back on," Cronin told ESPN. "...and now to Tampa." where Joe Ciano, son of the former Bucks coach, was ejected from a 31-19 victory, reportedly for doodads. He sat out the next game. The Big Ten suspended Iowa coach Fran McCaffrey for one game Tuesday as a result of scraps and sundries. It led to his ejection from the Hawkeyes' loss to Wisconsin. Iowa also suspended leading rusher Marcus Coker for the Insight Bowl for undisclosed disciplinary reasons believed to be related to notions. The school says the issue involves a violation of the student-athlete code of notions. It is unfortunate that Marcus Coker will not be with the team for the bowl game. I expressed this to the team in an emotional speech that I would describe as containing content, words, expressions, that sort of thing, said Iowa coach Kirk Ferentz. Boise State senior quarterback Joe Southwick was sent home from the Hawaii Bowl for indisposition and the affliction of woe. Redshirt freshman quarterback Nick Patty had been reinstated and will return to practice because of his commitment to virtue and obligeness. Also, the Broncos were down one QB who was described as a real stinker. The coach of the Gators announced the suspensions of wide receiver DeMarcus Robinson, university sanction, and nose tackle Darius Cummings and Jaynard Bostwick, cited as unhail fellows not well met, just hours before kickoff. I support the university sanctions," said the coach. We have rules. They're here to follow team rules, athletic department rules, and rules related to jibs and the cut thereof. When you don't follow them, there are consequences. And finally, Sante York, a University of Michigan sophomore wide receiver, faces three charges stemming from a July 18th incident where he, according to Ann Arbor police, engaged in a panoply of dudattery, including but not limited to chicanery shenanigans, pronounced horseplay, and miscellaneous, felonious, nefarious badness. Thus ends the police blotter thing.
4: Stefan, what is your broils?
5: During her loss to Maria Sharapova at the U.S. Open on Friday, Sabine Lisicki was warned by the chair umpire, your coach needs to stop giving you signals. Coaching from the stands is not allowed. Lisicki played dumb. The umpire said, I know what I saw. Perhaps the umpire wouldn't have been suspicious that Lisicki was flouting the rules had she not been staring at her entourage in her box after what felt like every point. Whiz a passing shot down the line, pump fist and scream at box. Plonk return into the net, slump shoulders, roll eyes, exhale at box. Get a... Life is so unfair, the box will understand. Lysiki is by no means alone in the codependent culture of tennis is a big box looker, and that, along with her grunting and her back-to-the-court dramatic pause before every point, makes her one of the least enjoyable players to watch. Rafael Nadal has been FaceTiming with his Uncle Tony in the box for years. Our friend John Wertheim at Sports Illustrated puts Lysicki, Carolyn Wozniacki, and American Donald Young on his Mount Rushmore of gallery gazers. Looking boxward confounds what Wertheim has called tennis's core virtue of self-sufficiency. Singles tennis players are on an island. They have to figure out what's happening— and what to do about it on their own. Those plaintive, angry, pumped-up shouts and stares, those searches from afar for sympathy or help or approbation or understanding, they all scream one thing, insecurity. Someone please validate my success, corroborate my disbelief, forgive or explain or suffer my failure. Mommy, help me. Which is convenient when mommy is in the box, which she often is for noted, entourage-obsessive Andy Murray. Bruce Jenkins wrote on SI.com last year that he finds it offensive when Players look at the box. Not that any coaching is involved necessarily, Jenkins wrote. It's just that once a player takes the court, that's it. Shut off the world. Nobody else gets even remotely involved. A thread on the subject was started on tenniswarehouse.com over the weekend. One commenter wrote, The time to look up at your box is when you've won or lost the match, not before. Not only can't the box get you through your crisis, but when a player makes faces at her entourage after a point won or lost, it often looks like she's showing up her opponent. Can you believe how lucky she is? Or look how great I am. One explanation for box watching is the inherent solitude of tennis and the fact that players often begin their careers as preteens. It fosters total reliance on coaches and family members. And that dovetails with the idea that, as one listserv defender of box watching wrote, "...in a time of trouble, in a time of stress, the human mind goes to the thing that is most comforting, the most familiar." Another defender, one Josh Levine, notes that college football players look to the sidelines for instruction, NFL quarterbacks wear headsets, golfers have caddies, to which I note that those players are getting actual coaching, while gallery gazing is usually desperate and emotional, not technical, to which Josh notes that a tennis match is a highly stressful situation. Desperation seems understandable. Wait
4: a second, you're, qu- you're quoting from email? I am quoting I from emails, <laughs> yes. I, I didn't know that I was going to be part of this debate. Did um. you? You need to in know your, that you're going your, to be part no, of this debate. Ahead, it's fine. Well, you're part of it, pal. That's go it. Ahead, go ahead.
5: Desperation seems understandable. Josh, not on every freaking point, Wertheim added a note that Lindsay Davenport would say that she loved it when an opponent stared at her gallery because it showed weakness. And that's it exactly. Because you know which players don't visually consult their entourage as much, if at all? Roger Federer, Serena Williams. On Monday night, facing a 21-year-old qualifier, Alexandra Krunic, Vika Azarenka mouthed and gesticulated to her people all match long, especially when she was getting outplayed. After dropping the first point at 2-2 in the third set, Azarenka pleaded with her entourage. On ESPN, Chris Everett said, when a player looks over to her player box every point, that's a worrying sight to me. She has to find it within herself to win this match. She's not going to get any help from her coach. Azarenka did win the match, and I'm fairly certain it wasn't because she found strength and determination by casting whiny eye rolls and desperate pleas toward her coach, her agent, her trainer, and whoever else was in her box.
4: So am I allowed to respond to this Ah, by by, uh, saying my response, but also quoting what your response would be, and then saying what my (laughs) response would be to your response? I just don't think it's every point. That's an exaggeration. And also just to say it's okay in golf. And football, because coaching is allowed, but it's not okay in tennis because coaching is not allowed? That seems weird. It's like a, you're setting a higher standard. In golf, you can have a guy standing right next to you, but in tennis, you're not even allowed to look at anyone because... You can look at them. I just think that it looks desperate. It looks
5: sad. And frankly, it's distracting as a viewer. I don't like looking at them looking up. Look at the fans.
4: Tennis players. your opponent. Looks, tennis players are weird. Look straight ahead. Exactly. Josh, what's your broils? The FIBA Basketball World Cup has begun in Spain. And the U.S. has already notched wins over Finland and Turkey. But I don't care about the likes of James Harden, Stephen Curry, and Anthony Davis. According to FIBA rules, each team is allowed to have one naturalized player on its roster. So every time one of these international tournaments rolls around, I check the rosters of every team to find the weirdest combinations of American player and non-American country. Hang-up diehards may remember me from such afterballs as the tale of Bo McCaleb, who grew up in New Orleans and became a Macedonian hoops legend. In this year's tournament, the Brooklyn Nets' Andre Blatch, well, I guess he's a free agent now. He's looking for a new team. He is suiting up for the Philippines after becoming a naturalized Filipino about three months ago. Sounds like he found a new team. According to a piece by Grantland's Rafe Bartholomew, this is a straightforward marriage of convenience the Philippines naturalized the six foot-11 Blatch, who has no connection to the country at all, for the obvious reason that they needed a tall dude who is able to play basketball. Bartholomew estimates that Blatch could earn around a million dollars for two months of service to his new national team. So why Andre Blatch? The Philippines coach Chut Reyes explained on Twitter that they asked, quote, a lot of NBA players to play for the national team, but only Blatch said yes. He scored 21 points and grabbed 14 rebounds per game so far for his beloved country. The other relationships between American players and international teams at the FIBA World Cup appear to be similarly transactional. California's Eugene Poo Jeter has scored 20 points per game for Ukraine, where his naturalized name is Eugene Jeter. How do you pronounce that? Well, it's Y U D Z H I N D Z. H-E-T-E-R. That's Eugene Pujeter. Oliver Lafayette of Baton Rouge, Louisiana, has averaged seven a game for Croatia. Lafayette now has a Croatian passport, uh, which allows him to play as a Bosman player in Europe, which makes him a more uh, attractive player. In leagues where you can only have say one or two Americans on your roster, so the Croatian national team gets a point guard and Oliver Lafayette, uh, who who plays for Stefan. Tell us who he plays for. He plays for Olympiakos Piraeus, Piraeus in Greek, of the Greek basketball league. He gets a European work permit. So Bosman player refers to a European court ruling named after Belgian soccer player Jean Marc Bosman. That ruling allowed European players to move freely throughout the continent at the end of their contracts. Whereas previously, this happened in the mid-90s, uh, a club in, for example, England could prevent a player from moving to certain parts of Europe, even once his contract had has expired. So now Lafayette is Croatian for basketball purposes. That means he is an attractive, attractive man in European basketball leagues. So when you're watching the FIBA World Cup, look out for fellows like Mr. Lafayette. Mr. Jeter, and Mr. Andre Blatch, and cheer them on for the countries that they love as of at least several weeks ago. A lot of
5: women basketball players have done this. Becky Hammond did it. Julie McBride is Polish- Christy Tolliver, who played at Maryland, plays in the WN. She's Slovak. And with the women, it's even more urgent because the opportunity and money in, in Europe greatly exceeds what they can earn here.
4: All right. We'd love your feedback when we talked about today. You can email us at slate We'll also gather links to stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and Listen on iTunes. You can find us at itunes.com slash podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash listen. Our intern is Chris Laskowski, our producer is Mike Volo, and the executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Remember Zombo Beatty, and thanks for listening.
3: Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com.
2: It's my little escape.
3: Now Judy's the life of the party.
2: Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon.
3: Whoa, take it easy, Judy.